0: namo more Rahato some Bhagawato namo her to some ma namo Buddha son. No more Put down <clears throat> having recently spent a couple of months um, on a pilgrimage and something comes to mind about the theme of the pilgrimage which I hope is more than just um, anecdotal but also relates to something that we uh, can learn from and make use of you know, meditation and daily lives life is a kind of pilgrimage <laughs> if it's done in the right way uh, and it's really about make, being able to make choices, uh, full choices, and commit and fully follow through the choices that we make, uh, follow it through from the heart. Um, it's about making choices and following them through. And this is what I mean by devotion. And it just, you know, leaves the word devotion as an afterthought because many people often think devotion is is a particular kind of um, something they see in outward form, it's flowery and it's uh, um, you know it's rapturous and it's tearful and it's uh, perhaps people feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit silly you know irrational um, belied belief um, belief in rituals and so forth and I suppose as with any kind of practices that we undertake, there there can be defilements and confusions and distortions. Certainly, any form of practice we take, you know, sitting still doesn't necessarily mean that we're sitting still, (laughs) or that we're, you know, uh, engaged in lofty pursuits. We can be sitting here obsessing, turning over grudges in our mind, or planning what we can do tomorrow, or you know, uh, these kinds of things so we can look pretty good on the outward form it doesn't necessarily mean that that's really carrying through and so, so we should be aware of a tendency to just you know, judge a practice from what one thinks other people are doing with it whether they're doing it for right reasons or not and a uh, sense of being able to really determine the mind uh, and determine it in particular ways this is what I mean by devotion devotion is really about voting this is what the root of the word it's making a very firm choice and when you you make your vote then you say this is my bit I'm doing this, I'm casting my lot in there this is my complete consent to this, this is what I'm going to be with uh, whether it's I'll find out, I'll learn from it You know? if I only kind of go half with it, then am I really going to learn? If I put myself into something completely then open up, receive it, follow it through, learn. Uh, and uh, that, that kind of training, which we do in Buddhist practice with a certain safe boundary, the boundary of the precepts, so we're not committing or voting for things that are going to be deliberately harmful, uh, or um, distorting to other people or to ourselves so you're keeping it with the boundary of what's morally appropriate ethical sensible
1: you know
0: you know, not, not encouraged to to um, sacrifice one's limbs or anything like that uh, but uh, you know you see how it's useful to get the the mind to, to fully just give itself to something and be directed from the heart the sense of I've chosen this, I want to be with this, I want to give myself to it rather than well maybe think this and that this could be, but that might be better and this might be good and but on the other hand it could be that like, what does he think, how come they're doing it that way and I'm not getting enough of this this is where you're actually just living uh, in the realm of thought directed and the thought is that we don't even really know what we're being directed by. You know, it's not directed from a sense of clarity. It's more just the habit of the thinking mind to speculate and doubt and uh, wander and be busy. And uh, so, you know, so often when we sit down to meditate, then there isn't necessarily a really full, strong um, heart energy saying... Just bring your mind onto this. Open up to this. Uh, don't bother with that. Because you know? when we choose one thing, we automatically decide to relinquish other things. Um, so, And it's difficult to really relinquish without having something else you commit to. You know? So of so renunciation sounds kind of hard because it's always giving up, giving up, giving up, and you feel you're just getting bits lopped off you and it's a sort of lobotomy job, or you're supposed to suppress every thought or impulse. But relinquishment is only really one half of the message of what makes renunciation possible, is relinquishment of some things and then full commitment to other things. So you give your heart, your joy, your passion, your concerns to certain things, and you just take them away from other things. Uh, and I think it's very important to, to not... Lose one's passion or one's sense of vigour or vitality just through what we think renunciation is. It's not supposed to be about um, diminishing our energy but actually uh, channeling it. So we give up some things in order that we can more fully live with and explore and open up to other areas, to other uh, senses, to other dimensions of the mind. And the real commitment, devotion, is to freedom. What, will, what brings around uh, peace, freedom, harmony, a sense of fulfilment in one's life. Uh, the mind is so often habituated to to consider and think of freedom in areas that are, that are, are not free, but they're desirable. So we say we have freedom of speech. We don't say whatever I want. You know, if it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, freedom to express myself, freedom to go where I want, freedom to do what I like. And so we can think this is what uh, freedom means. And this is the kind of uh, way that, uh, that society often presents uh, freedom and goals in terms of what will be, have the most, uh, what do I want, and. Uh, what will give me the most success or pleasant feeling or least stress or this that and the other, make me feel good. So you have an enormous range of, of possibilities and the mind is trained you know, to, to seek out possible possibles so you just, once you know, notice this once we decide something then most people, Western people, will think some other way it could be, not necessarily complaining or negative. I think they, they you know, they say, oh, when well, we could do this, as well, we could do, we could make it like this or change that. This is the way it goes, and often found compared with that, say, um, you know, uh, certainly monks I knew in Thailand just didn't have an idea. So fine, that's fine. Whatever. This is a big uh, phrase you hear a lot, lot of in in monasteries who say, well, whatever,
1: you know,
0: it doesn't really matter. And you know, that's fair enough, or loud there, which means it's up to you. Please go ahead, you know, you choose, it's fine. Um, Whereas the normal condition of the mind is, that, well, yeah, it could be, but then on the other hand we could have one of those, two of these, one of that, we'd be better like this, we better like that. And so one's mind is trained like that. This isn't a particular personal problem, it's a kind of universal feature, I find, of Western minds. It's basically quite, quite interesting, because people can always chip in something. If you have an opinion, somebody else is bound to have another one. There's no, no shortage of debate. <laughs> Which is, you know, fine and healthy to a certain extent, but when it, it becomes habitual, so that one's own mind never really settles or, or fully. its energy is, is is used up in considering possibles and the way it could be, what would happen if, and maybe it would be like that, and in two months it might be this way or that way. So your mind is actually using its energy and trained to kind of. Duplicate, proliferate, and move around. Yeah. So that when we come to meditate, it's very difficult for people to get one pointed or settled. Even when there's nothing really to, to think about or plan, the mind still tends to haver, shift around. Maybe which technique should I use, or which form of practice, or how I feel, you know, or trying to figure things out, planning things, or just playing, you know. Yeah, it's got, you know, something to do. So it starts just playing with things. You know, it has something to occupy itself with. So its energy is, is habitually about multiplicity, going to multiplicities. Sometimes negative ones, sometimes positive ones, sometimes ones that are about function and, and um, invention. You know, so it's good possibilities and not good possibilities so it's morally sound sometimes and sometimes negative it's not like that yeah. so so certainly in my own mind it's so easy for it to just uh, to um, think, remember something play with something, think of a good idea think of something else, it could be this way or that way or what I should do, or remember this it just likes to do that and it can can be very um, frustrating when we spent you know an hour or an an afternoon or most of a retreat for 10 days or a month or so just kind of continually jittering around and uh, never really settling in to anything. Uh, So to me it is quite a uh, the training of um, relinquishment in one sense but also Complete devotion, commitment, uh, choosing something, just being with that. Yeah. And it will be the way the mind works: is it will be pleasant, it will be unpleasant. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't like it, and it will go through that. But it does that anyway. Uh, and when you make the choice, not from a place of, well, is this is going to be the best. The nicest, the easiest, the most fruitful, the most quick, speediest, cheapest, fastest, comfortable, you know, whatever, just good enough, and just do it. Then your mind tends to not, you know, it goes to its likes and dislikes, but they don't really give, they don't really penetrate. Because um, as you've begun, when you begin to witness the mind more com- more fully, it's always doing that. It's always going to degrees of, well, that's a bit better, and that's a bit inconvenient, I don't really like that right now, and some of that would be better now, and maybe I'll do that tomorrow. It's, it's liking and disliking, it's just the kind of normal landscape of the mind. And if you f- follow it, then that landscape becomes extremely uh, atten- uh, heightened. That's all one ever sees. The devotional sense is... Well, yeah, there'll be some good and some bad, some pleasant and some pleasant, but that's not the point. The point isn't the feeling tone. The point is the quality of heart, the unity of the heart, the brightness of the heart, the vigour of the heart. And when one practices with devotion, the benefit is that the, the quality of the heart becomes so much more rich and fulfilling that the degree of mental you know, comfort or physical comfort doesn't really mean very much it's not that bigger a thing yeah. so we look at something like alms food for example yeah. so having lived in alms food for maybe 30 years so then it's actually quite difficult for me to get round to somebody says what would you like to eat it's really quite difficult to actually come up with something, because the mind doesn't tend to see, get anything going with it, it's just, well, you know, whatever, really. (laughs) But it can be, so it can be quite frustrating if someone actually wants to give you something that they think you really like, and say, well, um, yeah, I mean, um, rice, um, uh, chips, um, you know, you're kind of trying to sound enthusiastic about something. Um, because it's something now that's that so the habit is completely shifted whereas I used to be very when I was a kid was very picky around what I'd eat and wouldn't eat and all kinds of likes and dislikes sometimes i just invent dislikes for the sake of it i decide this week I won't like potatoes and I actually wouldn't like them I'd feel I'd, they'd taste bad and i feel repelled by them and I wouldn't like them at all You know, and I could go on with that for a, quite a while <coughs> And then something else that I decided I'd like. So I used to make this, I had one thing I liked, which was, I decided I liked orange juice mixed with milk, which is actually, so it goes curdled when you drink orange juice and milk. And I just drank this for a few years, I guess, and then one day I thought, this is horrible. <laughs> and I stopped liking it. <laughs> And then i decided I didn't like i didn't like only liked uh, fried potatoes i didn't like mashed potatoes so I, so I was very really picky around food um, and then being in a monastery we's, there's you know it's what turned, nobody ever asked me what I liked and if I did I wouldn't have got it anyway because it was just what turned up was the menu and um Yeah, first it was very difficult because I kept going, mind kept going to the what's liked and disliked. But then basically the the most powerful phenomenon was you don't have anything, and then somebody gives you something. You don't have anything, and you're hungry, and then somebody gives you something. So this eventually this sign becomes the predominant um, mark of food. It's not whether it's beans or cabbages, but you don't have any you're hungry, now somebody gives you something and it, the pain in your belly goes away. <laughs> and you know, you couldn't, didn't have any way of getting that unless somebody gave it. So the mind by itself starts to really register that particular sign. Oh, this is given. Um, and you didn't have any. You know, no way you could get it unless somebody gave it to you. It's a sense of, of um, that's what food means. It means that. It doesn't mean Chips or peas—it means you don't have any. You can't get it. You need it, and somebody will give it to you, uh, and, and then you feel better. And it's true that that's the same for all of us, I'm sure. So it's it's what where one's mind chooses to register something, register something. So there's a choice that gets made. Um, you know, first the choice comes through just the the um, distress. Of not being able to choose on one level, so you choose something you decide just to go to another place you give up that particular way of discriminating um, and first, this just feels like you're just getting a rough deal you 've got to put up with it and that 's the beginning perhaps the beginning of it of the practice but then the the, the practice actually is fulfilled by uh, sense of real devotion to it. So it's the renunciation of choice, but then devotion to commitment, to, to that particular way of seeing things, because it has the long-term benefit. The mind is peaceful, it doesn't um, work in terms of liking and disliking, it doesn't crave, it doesn't um, get into these these um, patterns of desire and craving. It just feels a lot more ease for. So then you see, there's a little bit of freedom and, it, and one is devoted to that. I treasure the freedom of the mind. The freedom from the heaving up and down. The freedom from craving and aversion is what uh, I treasure most uh, fully You know, you know, just getting the mind to, to learn to do that. So to sort of sit in the body and just to be with the bodily feelings, to move through the body as you meditate, just checking things out, whether it's a bad body, a good body, a male body, a female, old, young, sick, painful, pleasant, just to get the mind to give itself, open up to what's happening in the body or open up to what's happening in the heart. You know. Uh, as whatever pleasant unpleasant just the sense of full commitment be with this mm. and then one uh, realizes there's when the fullness and the commitment the openness of mind is a tremendous resource it's compassionate it's skillful and it's by itself it's not attached mm. an open mind doesn't isn't attached it's the closed clutching mind that's attached the open mind doesn't is not attached so you find your freedom just by being open to what what you're experiencing and learning how to get the mind to open open up take a chance so our, our life can, is a pilgrimage in a way or well, the possibility of it you know we find there are commitments and responsibilities and Difficult patches, and you know, and people we're going to be with, and it's going to be pleasant, it's going to be unpleasant, it's going to be painful and joyful, and so forth. But you know, just go into it, (laughs) open up to it. That's my recommendation (laughs) to the mind, you know finds a way to, to uh, let go of its, uh, its fear, mistrust, fear of being hurt which is what it all comes down to fear of being duped or hurt or you know, deprived the open mind is rich and full so it by itself it's satisfying So, when we going on this pilgrimage meant actually quite a lot of uh, discomfort and uh, on many levels. Uh, so, I was showing people some photographs today and of course, in the photographs, always look uh they show you a different dimension. I, I mean, I saw things I don't remember seeing you know, because I, I had my head down in the fog at the time or just dealing with uh, difficult physical feelings and you, you, sometimes you don't even see things. So, so you get these wonderful pictures of, of landscapes and sunshine and uh, inspiring scenery and things. And uh, so, yeah, that's certainly that's part of what it's about. And most of what it's about is actually, you know, commitment to, to the uh, confusing, the painful, the limiting... Um, uh, and uh, commitment to really putting yourself through something. So, well, Tibet, of course, is, is a you know it's a pilgrimage site par excellence. You know, it's the ultimate in many ways. Uh, somewhere, of course, Bodhgaya has tremendous resonances, but you don't see the. Even in Bodhgaya, you don't, you don't have a whole country where people are just uh, in their thousands uh, praying and bowing, and uh, everything is a kind of religious act to the Tibetans. They don't seem to do anything else, or <laughs> well, you know, very little else really. Everything is charged with that kind of uh, sense, and it's very hard, it's a very desolate, uh, hard, tough raw kind of country to live in. And, but you see, actually, and of course in recent times, Tibet's had a terrible, um, terrible, horrible devastation and mi- million more people killed of a population that was only 3 or 4 million. You know? And then all the genocide and the imprisonment and the brutalities that have occurred there in the last 50 years... Uh, but the what I noticed, you know, from everybody I could see, so in the whether in the rural districts or the city districts, or wherever poor people, beggars, poor people, it didn't seem to be. There was a kind of tremendous cheerfulness and uh, um, vitality. They didn't look like people who oppressed isn't they? they may have been technically oppressed but they didn't they didn't look like it they didn't act like it they were cheerful full of life uh, full-on uh, vigorous they weren't cowed and broken people and that remarkable because uh, you know a lot of people just have their homes bulldozed the wipe you know get your house bl- wiped out bulldozed and Uh, away by some modern development there's no compensation, that's that's it Um, and even people I talked to who'd who'd experienced torture and imprisonment um, spoke about it with no particular rancour or bitterness, just that that was what happened and they didn't seem to be particularly traumatised or um, you know resentful even it was just that's something that happened and now it's not happening and I see this kind of sense of the, the full-heartedness of a, of a way of living. Yeah. I went to, when arriving, and the first place we went to almost immediately was the, the central temple in Lhasa, which is called the Jokang. And as you, as you go there, it's sitting in, in the middle of a, of a small district which is mostly of market stores and houses. It's quite uh, narrow alleyways, so it's quite a bustling, kind of busy area. And there's this temple sitting in the middle of it. And around the temple is a kind of a, a lane. Uh, it's paved, it's not, cars don't go down it. It's, it's a pedestrian lane that um, completely circles this, this, this temple. And this lane is full of market stalls and shops. But as you come to the lane, the first thing you recognise is everybody's going one direction. They're all going clockwise. <laughs> Nobody's going anti-clockwise. Clockwise is the auspicious direction. So whether they're going out to buy turnips or whatever they're doing, everybody's going clockwise. So even if you know, it would only take you 10 minutes to go anti-clockwise, still they'll go 45 minutes clockwise to come round to the shop they're going to because that's the way you, you do it. And everybody's walking along, chatting... And people are prayer wheels, and then people are doing these prostrations, full-length prostrations. So some people are doing that, uh, which is, uh, and nobody seems to think this is particularly unusual. That there's a person standing up, and suddenly throwing their body to the floor, to the ground, lying full out on the ground, and standing up, doing it again, just proceeding all the way <laughs> around this. Uh, Joe Khan doing full length prostrations, which probably takes several hours to do, with great, great vigour. Yeah. And so it's the first thing one we'll notices, and this is like, well, the normal way of, of life. Yeah. In public, yeah. so I think you know, certainly kind of challenging because of the openness of it. You know that people are praying openly, cheerfully. They don't look particularly serious. They're, they're cheerful. They're happy. They're kind of mumbling and praying. and their bare and then people are throwing themselves on the ground. <laughs> and it's not like this is some terribly solemn religious act. You know, it's just a. Kind of, almost like a yoga, but they're doing it in, in in this public way, and it seems to be understood. Felt this is just the way you keep your heart bright. You know, one way of just letting go of sorrow, regret, and uh, choosing, keeping your mind on track. This is what I'm doing, you know. uh, and a kind of training, because you might do one prostration as a nice idea, but you don't do. 100,000 of them, every one of them was an inspiring, wonderful experience, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, so there must be likes, dislikes, uh, times when you're inspired, times when you're fed up, times when your knees hurt, times when your hands hurt, times when your back hurts, times when you don't want to do it, and you just keep doing it, because it keep, keeps the mind on track with a particular <laughs> channel. And, and um, I started doing some of these, with, um, not in the street, I was doing it out when we got to the mountain. Doing it out by the mountain, just see what it feels like. I'll have a go at that. And something about just really throwing the body onto the ground, not in a heap, you know, but actually deliberately diving. You know, it's not sort of like gradually crawling down and patting it, but just diving, diving to the ground. It's, I found that quite wonderful um, energy in that. You know, the ground out by the by the mountain Mount Kailash was kind of rough rough gravel wet hard rough gravel so you know occasionally scratching the skin but I was doing it I just really enjoyed the feeling of the complete directing and this giving the body you know, throwing you know giving the body giving to bodily energy as something that uh, you know you, you, it unifies the mind and it unifies it in the direction of of um, just offering oneself, opening oneself up. You don't have to find the, the, you know, like, well, what's the best bit of ground to do it on, or the nicest bit, or the most comfortable bit. (laughs) You just do it on the bit. Uh, And it's sometimes uh, uncomfortable or painful, but that doesn't matter. And to me, that was... uh, I didn't do that many of them. Some people... Tibetans are just Olympic on this level. They must be the greatest prostrators in the world, in the world I imagine. Yeah. So that uh, we, we walked around the mount, mount Kailash. We took us four days, and that was a workout. Some people prostrate around the mountain, you know, which takes, them, Tibetans take them two or three weeks to go around it doing full-length prostrations, which means... Um, through the rivers, over the fords, up the rocks, <laughs> over the, down the snowfield. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's rough terrain, and they're doing that. Uh, so we, some were doing prostrations around the lake Manasarovar, which is about mm, maybe 60, 70 miles around. Some, some prostrate all the way from Lhasa out to Kailash, which is 1,500 kilometres. It um, takes them a few years. And do that, and then they get there, and then you know prostrate back again uh, uh, so they 're olympic you know i don 't expect to ever get in that league, and in a way i found I found it an interesting thing just to have the sense of the complete giving and unifying the mind in that way, but um, you know, it 's an the outward form of it. Isn't to me? Isn't the real point? The point is, in to my mind, is actually that gesture, gesture of heart, and to be able to to um, get in touch with that gesture of heart and uh, bring it into training the mind, because it's uh, where we think letting go is it can be a kind of limp you know defeated state where you just give up resign you know if you if you, if we get that sense of oh well you know what can i do and just give up knuckled under go with it you know submit particularly in monastic life where there's a lot of rules and conventions you can get this feeling of your individuality is getting snuffed out and your personality is definitely you're Sidelined and and you know your choices are all cut short. So you feel, you can feel kind of um, a bit anesthetized or stifled by it all. Uh, but then letting go as a as a as a sense of oh, give, offer, give, offer, give, yeah. Uh, to get that sense of it the feeling for that then it suddenly it becomes a bright journey So, you know, the moods when the mind, my mind swings and I am moaning, mind, when it moans, why do I have to do this? Why is not somebody else to do this? Why is it always me who has to do this? And, and so, you know, nobody else, it's my, I'm not getting the best deal here and somebody else gets more time off and she doesn't have to do that, I mean, you know, the, the kind of stuff goes on. The mind <laughs> as a piece of a piece of experience, uh, and then you get kind of irritated by that, uh, you know, or, or believe in it, uh, trying to find a get a better deal, and something is just I need to remember, you choose this, either choose it or choose something else. Mm. Do it. Don't do it. Uh, you know, just get it. If you don't do it, then take the consequences of not doing it. Say, I'm not going to do this tonight. I'll bear that. I'll take the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. I'll offend people. Then I have to accept people's blame or whatever it is. Then just do it. You know, choose to not do or choose to do, but choose live it out, you know, and, and choose from a place where you really. One's really knowing, one is making a choice, not just following a whim or a a mood, but really deliberately determining and choosing, and with a sense of opening up to the consequences of it. And uh, so I find that helpful when I sometimes reflect on the things that I don't particularly like. You know, duties, responsibilities do meetings to go to well either choose to go or choose to not go <laughs> follow it up you know uh, and then I, um, right you know, make a choice and whatever it, uh, I feel I'm living my life and uh, um, I don't have doubt and regret learn a lot that. Sustaining is also a uh, kind of devotional part of devotional practice. So, Certainly, as one can imagine, doing those frustrations. I mean, one may be interesting, two may be good, three may be rewarding. You know, seventy probably a bit of a drag. <laughs> so, so you have to keep beginning again. Uh, devotion is is a way of lifting, continually lifting the heart, um, and during this. Uh, Time in in Tibet is rather like that. A lot of the time, we just have to put up with. You you make a commitment to go out to this mountain, well, that's going to be five days in a a bouncing along a dirt road in a jeep. Um, And then, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable, um, poor food, you know, rough, but you choose and then just keep remembering one has chosen. And it's certainly a lot easier when you're doing it over a brief period of time and the landscape's changing. Uh, when we get to, got to the mountain itself, then the whole sense of, of you know, keeping devotion going uh, becomes almost a, uh, more than just an emotional uplift, it becomes a physiological necessity. Because uh, the altitude around this mountain, Mount Kailash in Tibet, is goes from about 4,700 meters to 5,700, 5,800 meters, which um, 17,000 to 19,000 feet. This means the the amount of oxygen there is below half of what one normally has. So you don't actually, you never get enough to breathe. You never get enough to breathe. You breathe in and as you're breathing you're not getting enough. Your body breathes in so it doesn't get enough. Uh, You never get enough breath. You never get enough energy in. So you're continually feeling like you've just run up a flight of stairs. But there isn't a place where you can stop and get a breather because you, your next breath doesn't get enough oxygen. You see, you're always at the edge of uh, gasping, and it makes it's it, when you start to experience it, and then your body's always feeling like, oh, I've got to do with a break now. Oh, you know, I've had enough. Oh, you're tired. You know, enough. To do with a breather, but you can't have a breather. <laughs> uh, the guy the man who was directed it said well it, it, when you when you get when you keep going just keep going and then when you when you can't go just stop stop you just got to keep monitoring your breath rate and your heart rate when it gets too, when you're getting so out of breath that you even as you're breathing out you're trying to breathe in at the same time because you don't have enough time to stop and then he said don't best not to sit down just stand because if you sit down the effort it takes you to stand up again from sitting down is such that you've lost all the benefit from the <laughs> recuperation. <laughs> so even sitting down tires you out because you've got to get down you've got to get up again. So especially just kind of stand like a vulture you know hanging or lean on a rock or something uh, uh, and let, let things slow down Then stumble on a bit more. Um, this means you've got to continually kind of keep taking a step at a time a step at a time, because every step feels like oh that was enough I could do with the breathing <laughs> that's not enough, there's another 8 hours to go of that uh, and it, it, even because you have to decide whether you're going to talk or breathe so if you're going to talk it means you're going to have to give up some breathing to do that, because all the amount, if you're putting words out you can't breathe in so you have these very conversations you, okay, stop, breathe, <laughs> in, wait a minute. So it makes you quite parsimonious about the level of dialogue you want to get into. <laughs> you don't really want to have a lot of, of even thinking, you know, because it takes energy to think. So the sense of talking, thinking, you just don't want to do it if you don't have to, which uh, is interesting. <laughs> Uh, getting on with each other without think, without talking or thinking, just kind of grunt, guess, hand, make gestures, you know, hand over food, or the uh, please may I offer you this goes, you know, goes down to here, <laughs> because you you can't, you know, you you realise you you don't want to waste that much energy. Um, So in a way every, every act is, is determined you know, fully do this because you, you, know, you haven't got a lot of room to play with a lot of stuff to play with so you, every act is a devotional act by itself whatever mood one has in one's mind is another thing uh, but the very act itself becomes devotional because all the time you're choosing, determining fully giving to what to taking a step, to taking a breath. Mm. Of course, it's uh, so the, the the very nature of the, t- of the mountain, the terrain, almost requires devotion, uh, and a very mindful devotion because you you've got to quite careful about how much energy you use in any particular movement of the mind. And then um, there are also, but there are very, a lot of beautiful things one can do. Um, many places where one can make offerings and prayers and so forth. So that when you make an offering or a prayer from that place, it means you know, you don't do it half-heartedly. You either do it fully or you don't do it. You know, you, you haven't got time to play around. So you fully, for this moment, remember someone and give them complete heart to what you to to their to their memory or their presence. All along the the track, there are these small cans which are made through people pick up a stone and just put it and, gra- on, and gradually build up a little heap. Um, so, and they're always to the right hand side. So you always pass the can. With the right side, which is considered to be the auspicious side, facing this can, and as you go past, you pick up a stone and put it on the top. So gradually, this thing builds up, um, and that's a precious gesture because you just got p- a stone, bend down, pick it up, put it in there. But actually, that's quite a lot you know, to do, to to stop, to actually bend the body down, pick up a stone, and put it. On and walk on. So these things come to mean quite a lot because you you recognize everybody that can comes to everybody's done that a stopped thought, I'll put a mark here to indicate um, I've been here I give my consent to this, I give my blessings to this so that the next person that comes along is oh right you know they they take part in the same kind of action and gradually you build up a sense of communality, pilgrims, fellow pilgrims, you know, when you see a can you know that seven hundred other people have come along there out of breath, bent down and made that gesture and so you you do it, you know. And there's no need to know who that was or whether what country they were from or anything. You just commit to that particular action. Um and I found that a very beautiful thing to do. So make those gestures like that and to do prostrations and to make offerings because it meant so much more when it meant that everything you one has has to go into that even if it's just something like a, a simple piece of rock. You don't have to decide which is the best rock <laughs> and which is the best place to put it or which is the you know whose who's, whose rock is better, and uh, you know which cairn is the best one to put it on, and what you know. You just just see a rock, that one, pick it up, make a bless, make a prayer. If it's not the best, vow the best prayer. Still, that was mine. There it is, and then let it go. Um, that uh, I felt that t- that really I got a much richer feeling for um, devotion as being something that's that's um, individual, it's not a corporate, um, you know, belief or ritual. It means individually, one, for one moment, is making a complete commitment of one's mind to that gesture, to that movement, for one moment. This is where it seems to me it really um, ties in with mindfulness practice, with meditation practice, There's a sense of training the mind to let go of options, make a quick choice, and then just do that, give oneself to that, and follow it up, and feel the and then let it go. It doesn't have to be a great success, it doesn't have to be the most marvelous experience in my life, or the best, or something, you know, it just, that was me, that was mine, that was my moment, now move on. So, um, very helpful training. Uh, it took us about four days to go around this mountain Tibetans do it, many of them just do it in one day they just scamp around um, but the westerners and the, and the Indians a lot of Indian people doing it for, their, for us it's much more of a struggle so we have to stop and plod along and, uh, and take, take breathers and as a the most one of the most marvellous pieces is the third day when you have to go over the the high pass, the Drolmalar Pass, which is five thousand eight hundred metres, I think. So you have to climb um, seven hundred metres, which is two thousand over two thousand feet climb. And you're already, um, you know, you're already at 4,800, so you're already kind of at the gasping zone and now you've got to climb 2,000 feet uh, up a pass. And it, it's
1: uh,
0: one of those things where you just don't know whether you're going to make it or not. You, know, you just don't know whether your body's going to make it or not. Um, real kind of moment at the time, thing, and then lifting, choosing. Yeah, you can do one more step. Yeah, you can do one more step. Yeah, you can do one more step. Yeah, and just doing that for five or six hours, uh, and then stopping. Now's yeah, the time to stop. Now yeah. you can do another step. Another step. Another step. And uh, very cleaning for the mind because there's no time to wonder if and what and anything like that. When you come up to the top, there's a kind of uh, tremendous celebration. Uh, it is the top of the Dormalal Pass is like a um, kind of almost I like to think it's almost like a special place on the planet because it's uh, so remote and desolate and takes so much endeavour to get there uh, this is play, site, the pass itself which is surrounded by these crags and glaciers and rocks and, and but the pass itself is, is like a, a garden of, of prayer flags um, fluttering just a huge Poles and ropes and banners, and um, which are just about prayer, there's nothing else, they don't do anything, you know, they're just prayers. Uh, And hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of these. So you come to the top and you, you feel like you've actually arrived at a place which is completely dedicated to to blessing and prayer and has come around through it. everyone been there has made this special effort uh, commitment to, to uh, devotion to the spirit of it to taking a step at a time to moving against an edge to deliberately lifting and carrying oneself onwards probably so there's a tremendous exhilaration when you get to the top the What comes afterwards is, is, is after you come to the top you, then you start to recognize you 've got another five and a half hours walk <laughs> to get to the place where you, where the the yaks have gone with with the tent, the yaks go on so uh, and then it's uh, this is very 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 long walk. Uh, uh, and as I came down that path and first of all there was a sense of exhilaration and accomplishment and after about two or three hours of walking you know it's like you know, the energy was so low it was like a feeling of well you can either now um, kind of plod or you can really give it everything you got so we actually finished the day's walk very briskly, it was about two or three hours of really walking very briskly, like a complete, um, uh, just giving oneself away to the walk. So it, it, it was uh, uh, again a very uh, exhilarating experience. Mm. Yeah. You know, more than just patience as a endurance, but patience as the the complete willingness uh, to be with whatever. You know, until the willingness itself becomes the thing that you feel. You don't really take in so much the discomfort or even the fatigue. You just take in the willingness and that is when the blessing comes back. You know, Because then you the pilgrimage starts to bless your own heart you feel a tremendous resource and joy of willingness of heartfulness Mm. and I I sense I guess that's really what has made that country given it the strength it has Mm that his life is so hard, but in a way, uh, it almost asks that you either you either give up and die or just be miserable or you're going to lift up and enter it with willingness. Hmm. And the results, uh, I think are rather uh, educational, something we can re- look at ourselves sometimes when in a western situation where there's a lot more, things are not really pushing you physically to the edge, we can create tremendous trials and torments for ourselves just over the mind is not being fully held you know, it's not being it's being left to ramble and dither and speculate and project and you're not really holding it and uh you know giving it something fully fully giving it something to to be with so it it we experience the distress of mental habits of uh, of of leaving the mind unguarded unprotected and unchanneled and uh, see how, how miserable people can be you know quite an eye-opener I never saw anybody in Larson look as miserable as people in London (laughs) you know in kind of shut down frantic agitated states it were always some cheerfulness some willingness some openness to to the present moment when we take it into meditation, it's that um, training to you know, pick up the theme the body theme, the theme of the heart whatever one's theme of practice is and just you know recognize it's going to take you through some tough territory, some painful territory but um, that's the landscape of Sangsara you know, this this is this is the territory we live in, but it can be a place of blessing. If we, you know, if we train ourselves, we feel the willingness and the joyfulness and the one-pointedness. Then, the most desolate territory can be uh, placed with with beauty and prayer in it.
1: Okay, well. And mayam dhammagata sadhu karam